0: Hey, Bluejules! We're trying to answer any automotive questions you might have. Just give us a call. It's two nine one sixty nine zero one, and you put a two two five in front of that. You can reach us from anywhere inside the continental United States this morning. That's right. We really appreciate it when you spend your morning with us and interact with us. Is even better. Sure. Yeah, give us a call. It's two nine one sixty nine zero one. We'll be glad to try to help you out and point you in the right direction. We would entertain phone calls from anywhere in the world this morning. Oh, absolutely. You just go ahead and give us a call. We, as long as you speak English, <laughs> we can to, handle that. That's right. That's right. If you can do it in French, you can write it and send it in to me. I might be able to interpret it off of written, but uh, yeah. they talk a little faster than I can <laughs> translate, translate that in my there brain. Yeah, yeah, I can read it just a bit, but I <laughs> <laughs> yeah, give us a call. It sure makes the show interesting, and that's what it's all about. Try to get you some information, get you some advice, and try to help you from maybe making a mistake or going down a very
1: expensive path. Yep, that's for sure. And should you happen not to. Want to talk to us on the air this morning, which I couldn't understand why not. right. I can't imagine why. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe think of something after we go off the air this afternoon. You can always go to our website, get your questions answered that way. The address is agcoauto.com. That is A-G-C-O-A-U-T-O dot com. Easy way to remember that is take the acronym Altazan's Garage Company. We'll get you to our site. There is a contact bar on each and every page. Just Click the button, fill out
0: the little form, and send it in. It couldn't be any easier. That's right. And go ahead and send it on in to me. I'll get an answer back to you within 24 hours, always, and Mm sometimes sooner. Just depends on when you call. That's right. Well, a lot of times I am sitting at the computer doing work, particularly like in the afternoons. I find that I'm doing, once I get off of my regular job, Uh I call them and answer email and all that stuff. So if you send it in probably around 7 o'clock in the afternoon, you may get an answer back almost immediately. Right. Just because I happen to be sitting there, and as soon as a little chime goes off that I've got a new email, I'm... There and file an answer right back out to you,
1: but after about eight thirty, it's going to be about five o'clock in the morning, right? <laughs> That's
0: exactly right. I, I generally get up what most people consider pretty early around uh-huh. five o'clock, and so by about eight thirty, I'm generally pretty well tuckered out, and I'm off to the bit off the race. <laughs> <laughs> we were talking about email and stuff like that, and one sort of a recurring thing that I see not only in the calls that we get on the show, but also in the email, is people will write and they'll say. I've got this and this and this problem, and I've changed, blah, 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 Uh blah. They rattle off a list of relatively expensive components that have been replaced and did absolutely no good, wasted their money and their time. In some cases, if you went to a parts store and bought an aftermarket component, you may have made the problem worse. Sure, you may
1: have created another problem.
0: Well, yeah, because not all of the components on the market for sale today are up to the manufacturer's specifications.
1: I know. We have a few that come through the shop. They don't even meet specifications right out the box.
0: Well, that's right. You can take them out of the box. They don't even work. So you may be taking off a good part and putting a worse part or a bad part on. And the problem with
1: that is a lot of your parts have a core charge now, so you have to turn your old one in. To get a
0: credit on it. That's right. And when you do that, that part is gone. Yeah, so you can't get it back if you find out that, hey, there wasn't anything wrong. Right. We see that a lot, say, on Chevy pickup trucks, which have a problem with the voltage fluctuating up and down. Uh Uh-huh. And the first thing folks do is they take that GM alternator off, which is about a $450 part. Right. And they say, wow, that's too much. So they go to the parts store and they buy a $125 rebuilt piece of junk. Okay. Put that on. Well, now they do have a charging system problem. It's still doing the same thing, plus it's doing more things. Right. So they finally bring it to us and we fix the original problem, which was a loose connection or whatever, a bad voltage sensor, or a bad battery temperature sensor. We fix that. But now we've got a substandard alternator. Well, the original has gone back as a core charge. Correct. So now they're buying a $450 alternator to fix the problem. With no core to turn in because… Well, you to because piece of junk sending in as a core if GM will accept they it. They may not accept it. So That's right. you can't right. get your money back on that either. So you really, really have gotten into a world of trouble, and it could have been checked so easily. Sure. And rather than change, just throwing a part at it, you could have had that checked. And a lot of folks, I realize, do want to save money. A lot of folks just enjoy working on their own car. Nothing uh-huh. wrong with that at all. Form a relationship with a good shop that has a diagnostic culture, bring it to them, pay them to diagnose the problem, and then take it home and fix it yourself if you care to. Sure. But don't just try to guess at it. And more and more and more, there are just things you just will not be able to test yourself because you don't have $100,000 worth of test equipment. And you don't have the training or the tooling or the experience to test them. Right. Those things change every day. I mean, they they change dramatically.
1: Just like the charging system on the Chevy trucks you were speaking of earlier. Before this system came out, it worked just like the old ones did. Well, yeah. But if you didn't know that it changed... Then you're working off an old knowledge right. on trying to work on a new vehicle, and
0: it just doesn't work. Yeah, it'll be a completely different scenario the way that it operates right. and all that. So the way you go about go, diagnosing yeah, it. You'll go real far wrong. Let's go to our phone lines with Al. Good morning, Al. How
2: are you all? Doing great, Doing sir. great. Fine, thank you. Could you explain to me what the difference is between a
1: light truck tire and a conventional tire?
0: Oh, absolutely. Yes, sir. A LT and what we call a conventional tire is going to start with the letter P. That designates the P metric system. It'd be like a P-225-75-R15 or something like that. Mm -hmm. A light truck tire is going to start with a number, say a 275-70-R15-LT. And what the difference is, is the belting in the sidewalls are designed to carry a load. In other words, when you engineer anything, you can make it real good for one purpose. But as you get more specific on your purpose it gets further away from the other things now a car tire is generally designed to last a long time and to ride comfortably if it's a performance car tire then it's made to handle well and ride comfortably so there are different criteria with a light truck tire what you want is something that can carry a load and you want where the sidewall doesn't flex a whole lot because under a load if a tire tends to flex it rides better but also gets real squirrely in the truck So a light truck tire is going to be designed specifically for the application of a truck where it's carrying a load. If you put it on a car, it would ride like the devil. If you put a car tire on a truck, it's going to ride great, but it's not going to be able to carry a load, and it's going to be real squirrely. And also, generally, it's going to wear, because when you turn the truck, it tends to roll under on the sidewall. It starts wearing the sidewalls out. Particularly on vans, we had a lot of trouble with that. People would put a car tire on a van, and it would just keep chopping the tires up on the outside corners it was because the old tire wasn't stiff enough to stay straight when you turn because of the top heaviness of the van. Mm-hmm. And you don't, you don't have to know all that out. All you have to do is look on the little door placard and put back what the engineer designed. And when you go to an LT tire, you got to remember, too, those are designated by ply ratings. And your basic ply rating is going to be your 2 or 4 ply. Then you have a load range C, which is going to be a 6 ply, a load range D, which is going to be an 8 ply, a load range E, which is going to be a 10 ply. Then they also have, of course, 12-ply and all that, but that's generally for motorhomes and stuff. So you don't have to really know all of that, but you do have to know to put back what the engineer designed for the vehicle.
2: Well, I have a an 01 GMC Sierra, and I looked on a door panel, and it doesn't say LT on there. That is right. correct.
0: Yeah, just a regular half-ton Sierra will take a P-metric tire, because yeah. they don't expect you to carry more than a half-ton, which is only 1,000 pounds, right. which an average car tire can support about five to 700 pounds, depending on the size, so uh-huh. four of them is going to handle up to 2,800 pounds of load, uh-huh. so you're well within that parameter. Now, you can put an LT tire on it if you care to. but it's going to lose a lot of ride. It's not going to ride like it did when it was new. Now, if it were a three-quarter ton, it'd be a different story.
1: Yeah. Well, mine is primarily used for personal transportation. I rarely ever carry any load. If so, there ain't much of a load at that. Yes, sir. A
0: P metric is what you would want on there. Okay. All right. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. Yes, sir. (laughs) appreciate the call. (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, 291-6901 is the number. If you want to be part of the Automotive Hour, we would absolutely love to have you. Always appreciate your calls and appreciate you spending your Saturday morning with us. Ever there you go. We're going to go ahead and keep guys a little quick break and be right back with more in the Automotive Hour.
3: Travel my way t- Got to run, Paul. I'm heading to Agco for my car's general inspection. I take it in once a year so the team at Agco can catch any potential problems early. And they remind me of important upcoming maintenance. Things like oil changes, changing my timing belt, tire wear... Yeah, a general inspection each year would be a great thing for my marriage. Paul, thanks for bringing Marie in for her general inspection. Overall, she's in great shape. I did dial back her shopping system to save you a little money, and her nag button was stuck, so I loosened that up, so you can work on your golf game and not those honeydews. As far as preventive maintenance, you've got a big anniversary coming up in April, so put that on your calendar, and I'd suggest flowers for no reason and more compliments. And Agco saved me thousands of dollars. Paul, Paul, are you listening? Oh, oh, yeah, sorry. Sounds like I need to take Marie, I mean my car, into Agco for a general inspection. Keep your car on the road longer. Schedule your general inspection today at Agco Automotive. Agco, it's the place to go.
2: Hey, just to join
0: us. This Behind is the Automotive Hour. I'm your host, Steve Lewis Haldesand, with Mr. Vick Brian Terry. Hey, tune in to in us. We'll try to answer any automotive questions you might have. Why don't you go give us a call? 291-6901 is the number. And Al's question brought up a very, very good topic, I sure. And that is the difference in tires, because very, very often when folks need a tire for their car or truck or whatever, the first thing they do is start shopping price for time, not realizing the differences in tires. And there is virtually a tire for almost every car out there. And more and more and more today, they are very, very specifically designed tires.
1: Sure. Just running out and buying the cheapest tire, because that's the one that's on advertised this week is
0: not the right thing to do. Well, you may end up with something that doesn't even handle on the car you have at all. For instance, even getting the exact numbers and things as that, there are tires that are made for performance. Correct. And what we hear a lot, folks will come in and they've got a car with a sports suspension on it, an EX model or whatever, mm-hmm. and it requires a VR-rated tire. It's a low-profile VR-rated tire. Of course, okay. they find the price, they hit the ceiling <laughs> because it's an expensive tire. So they start shopping that well, size. Well, in- the first thing you hear is, well, I'm not ever going to drive that fast. Well, it right. has absolutely nothing to do it, how fast you're going to drive the suspension of this car is designed to load for that tire correct it's designed for that many plies in the sidewall that deflection in the sidewall that turn radius that squirm rate all the different factors that are built within that tire and then the suspension is designed for that and you put a different tire the car is going to really really be affected i mean the braking's affected the handling is going to be affected and we get cars in all the time. People think the frame's bent or whatever. Right, because the car doesn't drive like it used to. Yeah, they've had it aligned 15 times, and it still handles like the devil. They can only keep the car on the road. It's squirming around. It's doing that. And the other first thing you tell me, you got the wrong tires on it. No, right. Those are brand-new tires. Well, right. Well, yeah, they may very well be brand-new, but they're also the wrong ones for your car. No, i checked the size. Well, the size, size is one thing. Right. However, the ratings on them are totally wrong. This is not the right tire for the car. And the ones who you can convince, they allow you to put another set of tires in the car, and they're like, oh, my God, I can't feel yeah, the difference. Yeah, it's, it's, a, diff, it's a, diff, a, diff, a totally different car now. Oh, yeah, absolutely, day and night. And what brings a lot of confusion is the way they describe these tires. There's many times the letter following the tire they'll call speed rating. Uh-huh. And that's sort of a misleading term because the reason it's called a speed rating is the way they test tires okay the way they test the integrity of a tire is to put it onto a machine and they start to spin it and as centrifugal force starts to pull on the tire at some speed that tire will literally fly apart centrifugal force will rip the tire apart on a conventional s-rated tire that's around 112 miles an hour that tire will rip apart at 112 miles an hour thereabouts Mm -hmm. an h-rated tire may go up to 120 or whatever number a v-rated may go all the way up to 139 a Z-rate, it may go to 149. Mm -hmm. And the first thing that they're going to say, well, I'm not ever going to drive that fast. Well, that's true. However, that's only a test method. What they're doing is determining how much belting is in the sidewall, how firm the carcass of this tire is to withstand the forces. Because when you turn the wheel at 70 miles an hour, very similar forces are acting on the tire. The car, the weight of that car wants to keep going straight. The little patch that's on the road of the tire turns... And everything in between has to respond in like kind. And if you don't have enough belts between the sidewall and that patch that's touching the road and the car, then it's just going to squirm. It's going to move. You're going to start getting lateral movement and all that, which is going to drastically affect the way the car handles. And when you get four tires, two going one way and two going the other way, it's it's a devastating effect. You really, really end up with a car you can't hardly control. And it's because the tire is not designed for the suspension that you've got.
1: Every car that I've seen so far has been tagged inside the door. sometimes they're the older not Nissans I remember were in the glove box, yeah, a but tire there should placard. be a tire placard somewhere on your vehicle that gives you the the correct size and the correct speed rating
0: for that vehicle mm-hmm. and as long as you don't have to understand what all those numbers mean, you only have to put back exactly what the car all for, right. And one way that you can tell you're in a tire place that you do not want to deal with, and that's when maybe they don't have the tire you need in stock, and they're going to start trying to substitute another tire to something they do have in stock. And what they're doing is sacrificing your quality, your safety, to try to make a sale. Uh And they may not tell you that, but that's what they're doing. Another bad problem that I've seen is people will go in with, say, a set of V or Z-rated tires on their car, and when they complain about the price, the guy says, Oh, I can save you some money on that. Well, he swaps them to a T or an s rated tire, which is two or three stages under what that car requires. Right. Well, obviously it's cheaper, but it is not the right tire for the car. He hasn't saved you any money, he just bait and switched to a cheaper product. And may cause a problem later on down the road. Well, absolutely. You know? And you know, he may have made a bigger markup on that cheap tire right. than he would have on the, the right tire. So if you ask him to do it, that's bad enough. If they suggest it, that's even worse, in my opinion. But I also think that a true professional is not going to do the wrong thing. He's Correct. going to tell you, well, I'm sorry I couldn't sell you tires. This is what came this on your car. This is what comes on the car. This is what I have to put back. Correct. And that's the difference between a consummate professional and everybody else. And that's how you know you're dealing with the right guy. He's not going to do the wrong thing, even if you ask him to. Uh-huh. He's going to try to guide you as best he can. If you absolutely will not cooperate, then he's going to refuse a sale. Right. Because that's the only way he can protect you, the public, and himself, is by not doing the wrong thing. Hopefully, if enough people tell you the same thing, then you're going to get the clue and realize, hey, this is what I need to do. Some people are pretty (laughs) hard-headed. Was that, T-N-A? (laughs) Hard-headed. But— you have to look at the big picture. The reason, one of the reasons you bought the car generally was the way that it handled and the way that it drove when you test drove it. You liked sure. that, and that's why you purchased that car. Sure. Now, if the cost of tires is going to be a concern for you, then you need to look into that before you purchase the car. Well, I see most
1: people don't. Most people. When they buy a vehicle, they buy it because it has so many gadgets on it. The car. It handles the color. The color is the main thing thing that sells a car. Look at that color. Wow. Uh, Exactly. I love that sound system. Yeah, look how good I'm going to look coming down the road. That's it. (laughs) And that's that in the monthly payments. Right. But then you get later down the line and you have to start maintaining this vehicle. And then you notice, hey, these tires cost. That RVs. much? Yeah.
0: Well, that a lot of times folks will buy a car and they don't realize it requires premium fuel. Uh-huh. It's a high performance car. It has high compression to get the performance. It requires premium fuel. That's right. not a suggestion, that is a requirement. When you start putting low-grade fuel, you're not saving money. What you're doing is you're killing the performance of the car, and in many cases, you're going to kill the engine. Right. It's engine's going to fail prematurely because it's pinging all the time, which is generating heat, may blow a head gasket, may burn a hole in the top of the piston. It's not designed for the lower-grade fuel. right. So when you look at a car, what you need to do is look at all the factors, not just how cool it looks and how pretty it is and what it costs a month. How much is it going to cost you to keep this car down the road? Right. So, anyway, just a little lecture there. <laughs> that's a good one, though. That's right. Let's go back to our phone. I with Herb. Good morning, Herb. Good morning. Yes, good morning.
2: Sir. I called y'all here a while back about I had a generator with the motor mounts that tore loose. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. And I looked online and I found a common stuff, what it was called, E6000. And it I don't, you know, y'all don't like to advertise, but it's made in Pineville. And yeah. it's made. It's sold at a store that sounds like a deck of cards, you know, a hardware store. Yeah, there you go. And it's so far so good. That stuff seems to be mighty tough. It's a clear stuff, you put it on there and you clamp it. Huh. And it says one hour but recommend twenty four for a real good sticking. Yeah, yeah. mm-hmm. If somebody's looking for something that's
0: that glued it together, huh? that's a pretty <laughs> tough stuff.
2: I don't know that I'd put it on a four fifty four Chevrolet or something like that. Right, 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 on the hood, but well,
0: uh, <laughs> probably wouldn't want to get it between two of your fingers either.
2: No, <laughs> but it, it, it stays flexible, and it's clear, and it don't take the whole lot And it. I even glued a sole on a tennis shoe with it and worked it. Come <laughs> on. So, anyhow, I just wanted to put that out there.
0: All right. Oh, I appreciate, I appreciate it. it,
2: man. Thank you, Dan. All
0: right, Herb. Thanks, man. Bye-bye. All right, 291-6901 is the number. If you want to be part of the Automotive I we'd love to have you. We were talking about tires and stuff like that uh-huh. and what comes on the car and all. And I get a lot of email about folks, and they'll ask about cars, and and that's really good because what they're doing is they're asking what kinds of cars have a better repair history before they purchase the car. And whether it's a used car or a new car, one of the things that is going to determine the amount of money you spend on this car, and this is one thing, is the design of the car. Mm -hmm. It's just the fact that some cars are more problematic than others due to design, due to construction, due to the philosophy of the company that built it. If a company's philosophy is, hey, we're going to try to get as much money out of this thing as we can, then they're going to use cheaper materials, and there are cars like that. I remember, not to pick on Chrysler, but their, one of their primary markets was the fleet business, government cars, and rental cars, stuff okay. like that. That was a big, big business for them. And in order to target that market, what they needed is a car with a low entry price, that provided a lot of features Okay, because folks who buy cars to rent, let's say Hertz or Enterprise or whomever, mm-hmm. they are not going to keep that car a long time. No. Generally, 30,000 miles, they're going to turn the car. The same thing with many fleets like, say, Jelco and some of these guys. They are going to buy a car. They're going to turn it probably before fifty or 60,000 miles. Right. So longevity is not important to them. What is very important to them is the entry price, how much does it costs to buy the car, And the number of features that they provide. Mm -hmm. So a premium vehicle to illustrate the point was the Dodge Caravan. Okay. It gave a lot of features. It was a very, very feature rich vehicle. It was a very well handling vehicle. It had a low entry price. And had a very low entry price relative to the competition. Now, what they did is that van pretty much outsold everything else in the market by a wide, wide measure. Sure. And as long as you were going to use it in the manner in which it was designed. It was designed to buy, use, and get rid of before you made 90,000 to 100,000 miles.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: The folks that did that were very pleased with the vehicle. Right. But you had a lot of people who wanted to keep it beyond that. And the first thing they noticed was that at around 90,000 miles somewhere, the evaporator core would go out, which required taking the entire dash out of the car, fifteen to $1,800 repair. Right. Just about the time you got that finished, the transmission would go out. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a $3,000 repair. So now you're out $4,800, which is more than the value of the car. And it was just almost inherent in that design. Now, I know someone's going to call and say, oh, I got a Dodge Caravan, went $250. Well, that's great. It, yeah. Some of them did. If it was taken extremely good care of, it would obviously go longer than if it wasn't taken care of. But on the average, the design was somewhat compromised because they wanted to give a low entry price and they wanted to give a lot of features. That's just what they built the car to do. And lots and lots of cars are built that way. Mm-hmm. Other cars are built more with longevity in mind. And if that is your philosophy, I want to buy this car and keep it a long period of time, then you're much better off to buy a car like that. And the best way to get that type of information is to call the guy who works on cars all day long. Sure. Because
1: he's going to know. <laughs> he, he's going to know exactly what fails on them and, and around what mileage it fails.
0: Well, that's Right. And we're going to go back to our phone lines with Art. Good morning, Art. Good morning. Yes, Good morning. Doing? doing great, sir.
3: I have a slick question for you this morning. You bet. Motor oil.
2: hmm I'm seeing a lot of advertisement for conventional,
0: high mileage, and of course, synthetics. Yes, mm-hmm. What's the difference? What's the advantage of one versus the other? I'll tell you the truth, Art. The advantage to synthetic, let me address that first, is that it is a man-made product. So all of the molecules in the all are the same size or roughly the same exact size. When you take a natural product like petroleum, all the little molecules in the oil are different sizes. Now, the drawback to that is when heat starts to build, the real small ones are going to break up real fast. The bigger ones are going to last longer. If you can make them all the same size and make them all an optimal size, the oil is just tougher and holds up better. That's a true synthetic. Now, not everybody needs a true synthetic because not everyone is going to benefit from that. If you are under extreme conditions, for instance, you do a lot of stop and go traffic, you're in an extremely hot environment, or let's say you do a lot of real short trips, your average trip is three, four, five miles, and then you cut it off and you go three or four by five miles, you cut it off, that sort of thing, you will benefit from a synthetic oil. If you have a car that is very hard on oil, like for instance, some of the newer vehicles require synthetic oil. They put big timing changes and stuff in there that have to be lubricated. They can only use a synthetic because that's the only thing meets the specifications they need. All those applications, synthetic oil is a beneficial product. Now, the average guy with a grocery getter who drives maybe 25 miles each way every day and all that, he's probably not going to get the advantage of the synthetic oil, so he's better off with a conventional oil. So it just depends on your use of the product. And I guess the rumors about, well, you can run a synthetic oil longer, in my opinion, that is totally false. Synthetic oil will not go any longer than regular oil. It's going to get dirty faster because it's a much better detergent. It is a better product. It gives you better protection. It will hold up under certain extreme conditions better, but it's not an excuse to go longer. If you want to save money, go with a conventional oil and change it more frequently. Now, all that said, go ahead. I'm sorry. What about the high mileage? Yeah, that is just a a gimmick. Don't go for that. All that is... The oil companies realize that a lot of people are keeping their cars longer, so they come out with an oil, they have a little bit more of this potion, a little more of that potion, and label it as a high-mileage oil. And it's just something to save you for an additional charge. The oil that is specified for your car in the conventional brand, in the conventional oil, the same exact brand and everything, is what you should use for the life of the car. Don't ever change. Start out with one oil. Use the same oil through the life of the car and do not change it. Okay. Alrighty. I appreciate it. Okay, Thank thanks, man. Bye-bye. All right, we gotta take a quick little break. Benny, if you can hold on, you'll be first one up after this break.
1: We can shop tomorrow. I'm off to AGCO for my car's general inspection. I take it once a year so the team at AGCO can catch any potential problems before they become huge repairs down the road. You know, things like small
2: rattles and shakes can become issues and you never can be
3: too- A general inspection each year would be great for my marriage. Kate, thanks for bringing David in for his general inspection. Overall, he's in pretty good shape for an older model. I replaced his sensitivity regulator, which was getting a little worn. His not listening to my partner and leave the seat-up lights were both about to come on, so I fixed that. As far as preventive maintenance, more fiber, less beer, and watch his portion control, especially on the weekends. And thank goodness for Agco. Kate? Kate? Are you listening? Yeah, yeah, sorry. <laughs> Sounds like a general inspection from AGCO can improve my marriage. Uh, I mean vehicle. Uh, improve my vehicle. Keep your car on the road longer. Schedule your general inspection today at AGCO Automotive. AGCO, it's the place to go.
2: Hey, welcome back. You're just
0: join us, the Automotive Hour, I'm your host, Louis Albers, with Mr. Brian Terry. Hey, between two we'll try to answer any automotive question you might have. Why don't you go ahead and give us a call? We sure appreciate it. And that's exactly what Benny did. Good morning, Benny.
2: Good morning, guys. How you doing? Doing, doing great. great. Uh, I got a 2002 Dodge Ramp gas burner. Yes, sir. And the truck's been running fine. I take it and go hunt, Go to my hunting leash yesterday morning. And when I come out the woods, got in it, it wouldn't crank. Just turning over. I can't hear the fuel pump kicking on. Uh huh. So um, I wanted to see if there was you guys had any suggestion what it might be other than the fuel pump
0: itself. Well, it could definitely be the fuel pump. That is one possibility, Benny. But what you have to do, number one, is put a fuel pressure gauge on it and see if you've got fuel pressure. That will answer definitively if it is or not. If it's got fuel pressure, then you can forget that it's something else. And there are some other things that can cause the same exact thing. So you don't want to just go throw a fuel pump at it. Now, if it does not have fuel pressure that doesn't mean the fuel pump's bad either. You have to get a voltmeter and go back to the back and see if you got power and ground at the pump. Because, like, the fuel pump relay can go out, and it won't run the pump, so you won't have fuel pressure. Right. So don't assume because there's no fuel pressure, it's the fuel pump. Of course, another thing is, it could be out of gas. <laughs> yeah.
2: You
1: know,
0: I, uh, we have seen a, a fair had, amount of gauges be wrong. Yeah, the gauge would be off or quit working. It's showing a half a tank, and the tank is empty, and people have put fuel pumps in them, believe it or not. Right, absolutely. So, yeah. you know, you want to check that.
2: Uh, yeah, well, I just filled it up the day before, and that's yeah. all. Unless was
0: a leak. <laughs> yeah, I you know, you, you started burning a whole lot of gas, all it was. Right. But, yeah, if you can get someone to check the fuel pressure for you, which is a real easy test. I mean, you might even be able to borrow or rent a fuel pressure gauge from one of the parts stores. That's a pretty simple test. And if it's got fuel pressure, then forget about that. You can move on to plan B. Because I've seen some PCMs just go out on those mm-hmm. trucks exactly like that. You're good one minute out the next. And the first thing you do is they check the fuel pressure, no fuel pressure. Well, it's got no fuel pressure because the computer's not running. Right. So one thing you might be able to check yourself, turn the key to on and make sure the check engine light comes on like it used to. You know where it does the bulb check? Correct, yeah. If, if the check engine light does not come on when you turn the key on, it's possible the computer could have gone out. And even if it does come on, it still doesn't mean it's good. If you watch your tachometer, if it has one, when you crank it, see if the tachometer is kind of bouncing a little bit. Because if it's reading the crank sensor, that tachometer will bounce slightly when you crank. Okay. If the tachometer is just dead still, either the crank sensor or the computer is gone. Or the wiring in between. Or the wiring in between, all those things. So if you can get a fuel pressure gauge, test it. There is no fuel pressure. Put a voltmeter on it. You got power and ground tank. Then you can assume it is the fuel pump. That's something you might be able to do yourself. Beyond that, it would probably be cheaper to tow this thing to somebody let them check it for you because the possibilities from there are going to get so endless that you would go broke before you could guess at enough things to right. make a you know, dent in it.
2: Okay, one other question, okay. I, and this is something that I try to the, – the oil pressure gauge, I, I come to a stop and mm-hmm. it'll drop down to to zero and okay. – Pop man, I get the all light come on and it'll jump back up. Yeah, uh, that's a 5.7. Yes. Yeah,
0: they've had trouble with that, man. Those engines, when they get up around 100,000 miles, start losing all pressure. You need to put a gauge on, a manual gauge, and drive it and see if it is oil pressure dropping out or if it's just the gauge malfunctioning. But i got to say, I have seen a number of those engines lose all pressure, particularly if you follow Dodge's recommendations on the all-change intervals. Yeah. Uh, they will definitely, uh, if you're going out 6,000, 7,000 miles on all changes, you can almost count on an engine by the time you get to 100,000 miles.
2: Right, and this engine, had just been it's been rebuilt recently, and I did that. I, I put an oil pressure gauge on it, mm-hmm. and it, it read fine. As the other one dropped out, the one that's in the truck, it would drop out, but the oil pressure, to get the manual okay. gauge that yeah. I put on there. If manual case.
0: gauge reads fine, but it's still dropping out, then it's most likely going to be the oil pressure sender unit. That's m- by far the most common thing. Right. All righty?
2: All right, man. Well, I appreciate it. All
0: right, man. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye all one sixty nine oh one is the number if you want to be part of the automotive i would love to have you you know i don't know if that dodge is wired that way but it's some of your older vehicles the
1: fuel pump looked for a oil pressure sender yeah. i mean all pressure signal first mm-hmm. then the fuel pump would run
0: right that was some of the older stuff i think they quit doing that around 2000 i remember back in the 90s they had right some vehicles that if the oil pressure went to zero it would kill the fuel pump which was a good feature from the standpoint of it would protect the engine But they started to get into liability where if the car wouldn't start and a person was in a compromised situation Uh and wanted the car to start, then they were possibly sue the car company. So now what they have elected to do is that engine survival is not at the top of the list. Keeping the car running is at the top of the list. Mm -hmm. Just like on an overheat situation, they could easily arrange the car to where when it overheated, it would shut the engine down, which would protect the engine. Right. But let's say you're in a dangerous situation. You want to get out of there and the car starts overheating. Well, what they have decided is that we have to build it to where it'll go until uh-huh. it burns up. Of course, when it burns up, it's going to stop anyway. Right. But they don't shut the engines down very much anymore. If you look at the trouble that GM got into where their cars were dying because of the faulty ignition switch, uh-huh. That's a big big deal. People don't like the car to die and they don't like it to not start. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you remember back in the day we that was a common occurrence. Well, I mean four or five times before you got to the red light yeah, it would die. You'd crank it back up, keep going. That's right, but not not anymore. So that's sort of the strategy they're following today is they do not disable the ignition or the fuel system on a car. Even under extreme conditions, right. they'll run They'll give you the warnings, but it's up to you to shut the car down.
1: Well, they've gone to a – they start shutting accessories down to keep the car running. They'll well, start shutting air conditioning down right. and whatever's drawing a load to keep that engine running.
0: It cuts the load on the engine. also gets the driver's attention real fast. When you cut his air conditioning off, <laughs> you pretty much got his attention. <laughs> but that's one way to get them to stop driving the car uh-huh. is to shut those things down. Another thing that a lot of the vehicles do, they have what they call cool-down strategy. And they will start shutting the injectors down one at a time. And what that does, it allows the cylinder to pump air through the engine, which tends to to cool cool it down down somewhat. Mm -hmm. And it's not going to last forever. It's not going to, it may get you out of a bind. It may keep from doing as much damage, but that's the most it can do is try to protect itself. But it's going to keep running until you just tell it to, hey, stop running, or it just physically locks up. Right. And that's generally not going to be too, too long down the road when a car starts overheating. You got to remember, cars in the past, way back in, in our day, I guess, cars were running about 160 to 165 degrees. Right. Most of them had 160 degree thermostat in them. So when they were overheating, they were going to maybe 180, 190, 200. possibly 200, 212. That was considered overheating. Well, cars today run at 212, 220 degrees. That's sure. the normal operating temp. Sure, that's the temp before the fans will come on. That's right. So when they are overheating, they are getting very hot. Sure. I mean, they're going 240 all the way up to 260 degrees. And another bad problem is that you have dissimilar metals in engines now. For instance, most engines will have a cast iron or aluminum cylinder block with aluminum cylinder heads uh-huh. with steel head bolts so that when those aluminum parts start to expand, they're going to expand more than those steel bolts will. That extra expansion has to go somewhere. So it squeezes down on the head gasket, which crushes the head gasket. So when it cools back off, now this crushed head gasket is going to start leaking. So you that's why you blow so many head gaskets today. Mm-hmm. Not only that, but aluminum will warp when it gets hot. Sure. So once the head warps, the gasket can no longer seal. Now, another big problem that you get into is that when the cylinder block starts to expand – it will contract down on the cylinders so the pistons don't have room. They don't have clearance for the oil to fit between the piston skirt and the cylinder wall. Right. So the piston is rubbing dry against the cylinder wall, which will gall the pistons up and do extreme damage. That's why once an engine's been overheated, very, very seldom does it really survive intact. Most time, they'll start burning oil. They may start knocking. They may lose oil pressure. Many of them will end up blowing a head gasket, and it all goes back to that overheat right situation they just very few engines today can survive and overheat
1: well and they're also relying on electric cooling fans now because a lot of your vehicles front wheel drive vehicles your engines sitting in there sideways they have no mechanical fans anymore that's right so if the engine starts overheating
0: then you're relying on the, the fans to pull the air through the radiator to cool it back down and what has happened is that many times one or more of the cooling fans there may be two one or more of the fans quit working at some point in time mm. Mm-hmm. And what the driver noticed is that at idle, the temperature goes up a little bit, and maybe the air conditioner quits working as well. But when they're driving down the road, everything's just fine. Right. Because going down the road, you don't need the fan as much because you got 40, 50, 60-mile-an-hour wind going through the radiator. So they elect just not do anything about it. Mm-hmm. They just keep on driving like that. Well, now, when it does start to overheat, you have no fan at all to cool it down. So it really gets hot really fast, takes the engine out, and you got a much, much bigger problem. Not only that, but it's also not cooling the AC condenser. So the compressor on the AC is being over pressured. Right. Takes the air conditioner out. Not only that, just to <laughs> not keep adding more fuel to the fire, but when the engine overheats, that's what's cooling the transmission. So sure. the transmission is also overheating. So you can easily total a car just by overheating it oh, one yeah, time. Definitely. So
1: And of, the strategy on the cooling fans is not just on off anymore. No. They have a a variable speed that they'll run depending on the a- demand. demand from the engine. Right.
0: So they may run at 10%, 20%, 30%, 40%, 50 on up to 100%. Right. So what and we're saying
1: is just because they come on doesn't right. mean they're
0: functioning like they're supposed just to. Just because this fan turns on and turns, you can't look at it and say, okay, the fan's working fine. Right. We get them in all the time. The air conditioner is eating a compressor. They put a new compressor on each second compressor. They can't figure out what's wrong. Well, the fans are working. No, they're not working. They're running at 20%. Correct. They have to run at 100% to cool that condenser. And unless you have the wherewithal to go in and measure how much is being commanded and the speed at which they're turning, you right. don't know that. Maybe the module's going bad. Maybe the fan, some of the windings in the fan are bad. Mm-hmm. It's not capable of running at 100%. And so it is turning if you look at it, but it will take the AC compressor out time and time again. Sure. So you got to just watch you can, it, you Yeah, know. you can be led wrong a whole lot. Real quick. Well, that's right, and that's one of those old things where we just look at the fan, and say, it's running, it's okay. Right. Not anymore. (laughs) Hey, 291-6901, we're going to take another
3: quick little break and be right back with more on the Automotive Hour. Got to run, Paul. I'm heading to Agco for my car's general inspection. I take it in once a year so the team at Agco can catch any potential problems early, and they remind me of important upcoming maintenance. Things like oil changes, changing my timing belt, tire wear. Yeah. A general inspection each year would be a great thing for my marriage. Paul, thanks for bringing Marie in for her general inspection. Overall, she's in great shape. I did dial back her shopping system to save you a little money, and her nag button was stuck, so I loosened that up so you can work on your golf game and not those honeydews. As far as preventive maintenance, you've got a big anniversary coming up in April, so put that on your calendar. And I'd suggest flowers for no reason and more compliments. And EggCo saved me thousands of dollars. Paul? Paul, are you listening? Oh, oh, yeah, sorry. Sounds like I need to take Marie, (laughs) I mean my car, into Agco for a general inspection. Keep your car on the road longer. Schedule your general inspection today at Agco Automotive. Agco, it's the place to go.
0: Hey, welcome back. If you just join us, the Automotive Hour. I'm your host, Lewis Altam, president of Agco Automotive. Got our lead tech, Mr. Brian Terry, right here by my side. Hey, Tweet Tools, we can answer almost any question you might ask. Why don't you go give us a call? It's 291 6901. We really appreciate hearing from you. And we still got a few minutes to get your call answered for you. That's right. And just in case you don't want to call in.
1: That's right. Or maybe something occurred to you after we go off the air, you can always go to the website, which is agcoauto.com. That is A G C O A U T O.com. There's a contact bar on each and every page. Just click the button, fill out the form, and send it on
0: in. It couldn't be any easier. That's right. We get a lot of email. I mean, I probably get... Ten to twelve email a day Uh uh, from folks who just either listen to the radio show or just happen to find our website. And right,
1: we've got uh, a few here. Okay, go over these real quick. We got Mr. Ed from New York has a Subaru, Uh and he's got a loud noise when his engine's running, and he suspects it's
0: a belt. Yeah, he says it's kind of a whining noise. Right, a real whining type noise. It's yeah. He was thinking belt, and I told him, well, most belts are not going to be a whining noise. It'll be more of a squealing noise or squeaking noise. However, it may very well be a belt-driven accessory. Sure. That happens all the time. Well, and that particular Subaru has an idler pulley on it, and Uh those idler pulleys are generally good for about 100,000 miles. Right. If a bearing in that pulley goes out, it's going to give you a whining noise that's going to be with engine speed. Sure. Best way to find that is to remove the belts temporarily one at a time, Uh crank the engine up and see if the noise is gone. When the noise goes away, then you know that's something that that belt is driving. You can just turn each accessory by hand, and if you feel a rough or you feel some slack in it, then that's just a good way you can isolate that problem. Sure. We've seen belt tensioners go bad and cause a problem like that. Uh, Generally, belt tensioners will last about 100,000 miles. Right. About the
1: lifetime of a belt. Mm So when you're changing a belt, go ahead and do yourself a favor and change that tensioner too. Mm -hmm. A lot of times that spring will get weak and it'll start bouncing around or a bearing will go out in the tensioner and the bearing will pitch off to one side because of the belt tension.
0: And as that belt comes across that wheel... It skips, mm-hmm. and as it skips, it makes noise. a lot of folks are tempted to just change the pulley because the pulley fails on attention a lot of times. Right, want to change the pulley on it? And they do sell just the pulley. But that's real disservice because the pulley costs probably half as much as the whole tensioner does. Sure, and it's a lot of just hard to change. Well, a lot of times you got to take the tensioner off to change it. Right, it just doesn't make any sense when that pulley's worn out, that tensioner's worn out. It'd be better just to go ahead and replace the whole thing. Sure, Do yourself a favor. Sure. So. Good question.
1: We've got another one here from Sean out of Nevada, and he's got a Dodge Ram fifteen hundred, and he
0: was having a problem. He says it looks like it's leaning. Yeah, this is a brand new two thousand fourteen model truck. Right. Picked it up from the dealership and brought it home, parked it in his driveway, and noticed the truck was leaning about three-quarters to an inch to one side. Uh-huh. So sent me an email, and like I told him, first thing you want to do is stand behind the truck, look at the tailgate, and look at the back window and see if they are out of level with each other. In other words, if it appears to have a twist in the truck. So he wrote back and said that it did. I said, well, okay. that means that the frame is probably twisted on the truck, which happens a lot of time in transport, sure. particularly on pickup trucks, because of a frame-type vehicle. Right. The frame is built sort of like a ladder. If you can imagine four giants grabbing a ladder, one on each corner, two pushing up, two pushing down, it just twists in the center. Sure. When it does, the first symptom is the vehicle starts leaning. Well, he got it back from... They said they corrected it, and the bed and the cabs now, now they line up. Okay, but the truck is still leaning. Okay, so I said, "Well, go and check closely because what some unscrupulous characters will do is they'll put shims under the bed or shims under the cab." Right, and I think that's what they did. But anyway, he brought it back, and now they're trying to tell him that well that's within spec. So he emailed back and he was asking, "What is the spec on a frame?" generally plus or minus three millimeters throughout the frame. Now, they may lean a bit more than that, but the spec on the frame is generally plus or minus three millimeters. Uh So I asked him to go out to the new car lot, take a tape measure with him, measure several other new ones on the lot. There you go. Which he did. Those were all within about a quarter of an inch. Okay. So I'd go in and say, well, look, since those are all within a quarter inch, I'd rather have one like that. (laughs) (laughs) Or break mine like that. Yeah, Yeah. break mine like that since this was normal. Right. But, yeah, I hadn't heard back from him yet
1: as to what has – some of it, but that happens on the transport vehicle. You know, when they transport a vehicle from the manufacturer to the distribution place, right? They pull them down on a trailer or on a train car or on a transport, boat, right. transport some kind of vehicle and they will grab the frame of the vehicle and start pulling it down with chains and at times they'll grab one corner and the other one or mm-hmm. they may grab all four corners but pull one chain tighter and as that vehicle bounces on right. the suspension it starts pulling on that chain and by the time they get where they're going they'll have a
0: twisted frame well I have, i've seen bent axles before oh yeah absolutely i had a truck driver tell me one time he says well if you ever drove a transport truck with all those trucks back there when it leaves the factory they got a guy standing there with a white coat washing how tight all that stuff's bound down uh-huh. it's all done properly but when you can start going down the interstate 75 miles an hour all those trucks start bouncing and you can't go any faster well they make money by delivering fast and they want right. to go quicker so first truck stop they get in with a chain bind to crank them all down <laughs> <laughs> now you run 80 90 miles an hour of course they twisted the whole truck of uh, yeah. trucks up so yeah one of those things you really got to watch for i've never seen a new vehicle lean because of a spring no. i'm saying it couldn't happen but it's hardly ever going to be a spring. It's generally going to be a twist in the frame of the... Even an older vehicle, springs just usually do not give that much trouble. Well, and when they do, they fail in pairs. The whole vehicle will go down uh-huh. in the front, down in the rear, start bottoming out. That's spring failure. But generally, one spring is not going to fail, and the other one still be good. Right. So it's not normally going to be a leaning condition when a spring fails. It's generally going to be a, a sag in the front, a sag in the rear, sag all the way around. We've had vehicles where... I had a gentleman not too long ago. He says, When I put two people in the back of the car, it all bottoms out. Uh-huh. And he had changed the rear shocks. Well, it still did the same thing. Well, shock doesn't support weight, it only no. dampens the load. The spring's fatigued on the vehicle. Puts two new springs in the back, picked it up. Now you can put two people right. in the back, doesn't bottom out any longer. And the thing about it, the
1: ride height on that vehicle was correct. Mm-hmm. Unloaded, static height. But when you loaded it,
0: the springs gave way, and it it bottomed out. It lost its ability to carry a load, so the static height without a load on it was still correct, but as soon as you loaded it, it went down more than it should, so kind of hard to diagnose.
1: Right. We've got another one here from Mr. Sacks in Texas. He's driving a Toyota 4Runner and has a coolant leak, and he suspects it's the radiator, Mm -hmm. but he's not sure, and he said it looked like original radiator, but... Upon inspection, they found that there was a crack in the plastic tank. Right. And want to know if it could be fixed. Yeah.
0: You don't ever want to fix a radiator. And particularly this one, I think, was about 14 years old. You really got your money's worth out of it. By the time that plastic tank cracks in one spot, both tanks are completely brittle. Sure. They're just going to keep on doing it. Not only that, but the core it's already got a lot of corrosion in it it's an old radiator you're far far better off just to discard that radiator get a new radiator and put in it's not like the old days where everything was copper and brass right and
1: the radiator lasted forever well yeah and could readily be repaired right you could unsolder the tanks off of it rod the the tubes out solder the tanks back on it and you were good to go for another 50
0: 60 000 miles right. with it these are not plastic. today yeah these are plastic and aluminum and that plastic is brittle. <laughs> you're really not doing yourself a favor at all by trying to repair a radiator i've not seen any any type of patch that'll stick. I haven't either. And even if you went in and put two new tanks, you still got a worn-out core, and you probably spent nine tenths of the price of changing the radiator. Can you even get the tanks to put oh, on some aluminum radiator? You can some radiator shops still do that? But I don't think I think that's false economy. I don't think I do that would really benefits in any way, shape, or form. No, by bet- the time a radiator gets eight to ten years old, it's time to start looking for another one. Just sure. like swap it out. Best thing you can do is go get you a new one. Well, we already talked about what
1: happens when engine overheats. That's it. So, so you don't want to do that. Take your old one, just, knock the plastic tanks off of, it, and take
0: it to the scrapyard and recycle it. That's right. Recycle that aluminum and move on. There you go. <laughs> hey, I think we're just about out of time, so we we'll wanna start getting on out of here. Tell everybody how much we appreciate them listening this morning and every Saturday morning on the Automotive Hour.
1: Go to your favorite podcast service and give us find
0: us and give us a written rating. Yeah, if you give us a written review, what that will do is move us up in the ratings so more people can find us when they type in the word automotive or auto repair or car show or whatever. We'll be close to the top so more people can listen to us. Easy That's, to find. Yeah, much easier to find. That's all based on the written reviews we get from you folks. So we really appreciate it when you do that. Not only that, but it lets us know we're doing a good job. Hey, preceding was opinion based on our experience in the automotive industry. Have a great weekend.